for millennials, young Gen Xers who are listening to this, what is the analogous show in our cartoon <laughs> universe? Oh, interesting. Is it is it Power Rangers? I don't think so. It's not Power Rangers is a little bit later. Yeah. I think that the genre of this show is a team of people helping somebody. Yeah. Yes. And I think in that sense, I, I want to say maybe Rescue Rangers is a oh. is a reasonable analog for this. Yeah. Um, a lot of these uh, helping <laughs> helping teams are kind of working in an extra legal or vigilante <laughs> capacity, <laughs> as opposed to the the sort of institutional <laughs> foundational pillars of Paw Patrol. Who deputized them? Who deputized <laughs> yeah, them? Was, I, I imagine all of those Rescue Rangers shows ends with like one of the Paw Patrol cops showing up and being like, "You're not allowed to do any of this." <laughs> Leave this to us. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and this is the Culture Study Podcast. I'm Philip Masiak. I'm the TV critic for The New Republic. I teach at Washington University in St. Louis, and I'm the author of the book Avidly Reads Screen Time. How do you think about writing about television, like right now? Like, how do you talk to your students when you're teaching about reading TV as a cultural text? One of the things that I always say, and this is in media studies classes as well as in literature classes and pop culture classes, is that every text is teaching us something. And it's doing that whether it's a sort of obvious highbrow, you know, literary text like Moby Dick or Beloved, or whether it's a car commercial or a cartoon show or a photograph in a magazine. And that we learn the way we interact with text, whether we view it as such or not, is that we're learning things from them. And so understanding and paying attention to these texts and the way that they teach us what they're teaching us, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, um, is a really important way to engage with culture. Studying it, as you might say. Studying culture. So earlier this year, we did an interview in Culture Study, the newsletter, about your new book. And, you know, I feel like that sprung from you having kids, one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) watching (laughs) children's television and then Mm -hmm. combining the fact that you had to watch children's television with your like critic's eye and -hmm. being one of the only people that I know who wrote really interestingly and uh, persuasively about children's television. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about like writing about children's television and writing about screen time more broadly? Sure, of course. Yeah. So I've been, as you said, I've been writing about TV with you and with other people for a really long time. And what that has usually meant are, you know, uh, prestige TV shows that air on Sunday nights, right? Yeah. <laughs> or sometimes Monday nights. <laughs> and um, and so a lot of that, because you and I came up in a time when episodic criticism the like the recap era or the post recap era was 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 very big and what people wanted we turned the way that we pay attention to any cultural text toward these sort of episodic snippets of tv shows and so i think i learned as a writer and as a viewer to to view with that kind of granular attention um things that are accumulating and that was like my practice of of yeah. watching tv and then you know, we had Maeve uh, in 2015, and I started watching TV with her as at the point when she started watching TV. And, you know, her TV shows are very different than my TV shows. But it's hard to turn that 
way of watching off, I think. Yeah. And so I wrote about this in Slate a couple of years ago about the sort of paranoid style of viewing that that you start to develop when you're watching pre-K CGI cartoons with your child, but you're watching them the way you would watch, you know, Game of Thrones or, or something like that. Right. And, uh, and it becomes, it's both sort of definitionally inappropriate to the, <laughs> to the way you're supposed to watch those shows. It's certainly not the way Maeve is watching them or Phoebe. But it becomes like a fun little game. It's the way you sort of keep yourself invested or keep, keep yourself watching is to ask about the like the logistics of the the governmental structure in in <laughs> Dana Tiger's neighborhood or something like that. And the thing is, I'm saying this as you know, well, I'm a TV critic and I learned how to do this because I'm a TV critic. But I think a lot of parents and a lot of caregivers watch in the same way, where yeah. you know, it's. These shows are not interesting from an adult perspective. <laughs> and so you have to sort of make them interesting in some way. Yeah. But that is to say, there are some really interesting and very good shows for uh, for kids. But by and large, you're watching these sort of formulaic, you know, cartoons and sort of projecting things onto them in a way that I kind of enjoy. Yeah. And I think that, like, they're there, right? Like, ideologies that form the bedrock for, like, how these different shows are constructed, like the world building, Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing like quote unquote natural about like the worlds that they build, even though there's, um, you know, whether they're peopled with tigers that are doing like asthma sounds, which is what Daniel (laughs) Tiger is, or the different shows that we watched. I was like, Oh, there's like gummy bears that bounce up and down or like snorks is like, I had like a, a weird underworld of animals that have things coming out of their head. Like that's not natural, but also like the way that they've arranged families, like Mm -hmm. the way that they've arranged Mm -hmm. their moral universe, all that stuff. Like it's obviously building on an ideologies that we've accepted within our society for, for better or worse. Like, so there is that stuff to unpack, but then also sometimes you have to be like, Tom and Jerry are just running around hitting each other. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I think you're I mean you're right obviously. There's, you know, nothing's natural about any media, right? Yeah. All media is artificial and and imagined and trying to to sort of replicate some vision of of reality and that works one way in classical Hollywood, it works one way in 21st century prestige television, and it works just the same in in TV that's meant for 3-year-olds. And sometimes I think, you know, whether it's Tom and Jerry hitting each other or you know, Bluey and Bingo trying to figure out how to how to play together and with their parents. There's a, it's maybe a simplified version of that that world building, right? I think about like shows like Doc McStuffins, where the action is like right up front and everything else in the background is kind of blurry, right? It's uh-huh. kind of it's like a desktop wallpaper for <laughs> you know what's happening in in the the front end. But what's happening in the front end is world building, right? And it's a, teaching yeah. you about like how you're supposed to help people or that you're supposed to help people yeah. um in a in a certain given context and um I think the it's not just that it's world building, but it's also that I think we generally have a presumption about kids TV that all the world building and all of the messaging is uh, is supposed to be positive, right? It's supposed to, you know, if I'm saying that everything that we, all media texts that we encounter are teaching us things, you know, surreptitiously or, or even unconsciously, you know, we expect 
kids TV to teach kids things, right? That's that's the expectation of, of, of children's television. And so that sort of ideological aspect you're talking about, I think is even more front and center with these shows because parents think, oh, well, this show's good because it's teaching my kids something right. positive or something good or something that will help them to become a, a good person in the world. Right. And that includes representation too, which we can oh, yeah. we can get into. I think we should establish a little bit of our um, positionality, to use an mm-hmm. academic word. Like we talked a little bit about yours watching television with your daughters. Mm-hmm. Mine is very different in that I do not have kids. <laughs> I sporadically engage in various <laughs> television texts when I am around my friends' kids, and mm-hmm. so that means sometimes it's when I'm watching them, we'll watch something, and sometimes it's like. Oh, this happens at my my friend who lives in Seattle. When I stay at their house, they they love waking me up first instead of their parents. They're like, "We're gonna I go bet the get." The parents like that too. They they love it. Um, they call me Auntie Blondie. So they they're like, "We're gonna go get Auntie Blondie." They come down and they wake me up and they're like, "Come watch TV with us." It's six thirty in the morning. I get them like some cereal and like a giant thing of milk in a sippy cup. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Who has ever consumed this much milk?" And <laughs> Then we choose what we're going to watch. And so sometimes, depending on like their ages, it's a movie. Sometimes it's a, t- a TV show. I've watched a bit of Paw Patrol. Mm-hmm. The kids are kind of aging out of it. Yeah. So the, my Paw Patrol knowledge is not full, yeah. but does have a lot of vibes. Uh-huh. And also I know a lot about like the critique that it's propaganda, which mm-hmm. we're going to get into as well. How much Paw Patrol have you personally watched? So it's it's interesting. As I, I think I described it to you and, and Melody is that I'm conversational in Paw Patrol, yes. but not fluent in Paw yes. Patrol. Um, I think, so I was talking to Phoebe, uh, so Phoebe is uh, my four-year-old, uh, about this this morning, and she knows about Paw Patrol, but she has not really watched it at any great length. Mm. Maeve, her older sister, who is eight, did watch Paw Patrol um, in in her youth. I'm not 100% sure in what context. I don't remember. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen episodes. We've seen a bit of it. It was never her sort of central rotation show. Um, It was something that would seep in. Um, And I believe we had uh, a stuffy or two. This is the thing that's actually interesting to me. I feel as if uh, Paw Patrol is one of the more culturally visible shows of this genre. So Maeve was not a big fan, but somehow ended up having, you know, a rider and a sky stuffy um, in her her room. There are shows that I would identify as, well, Maeve was obsessed with this show. And she was never obsessed with Paw Patrol. But Paw Patrol is everywhere. It's yeah. it's very available. It's very front and center if you walk the toy aisle at a Target or something like that. And so my experience of it is both as an like an occasional, you know, co-viewer, but also as as someone who just notices it everywhere. And and, you know, lots of kids dress up as Paw Patrol characters for Halloween in, you know, kindergarten age and, and things like that. This is a great, I think, segue into talking about how many questions we got from culture mm-hmm. study readers because like this is it was double digits like it was easily the the most popular question that or like topic that i posed like what questions do you have and i think it's because as we talked about before too parents are exposed to this and mm-hmm. like it's super boring but want to make it interesting to themselves and so here are all the questions yeah 
that they are asking, you know, sometimes out of a little bit of anxiety, but sometimes, mm-hmm. and I think mostly out of like, what is this ridiculous world? So let's get into the first question. It is from Emily. Let's do this, as they would say on Paw Patrol. <laughs> let's do that. Let's do this. How do my kids know so much about Paw Patrol when we've never watched it in our house? And is it police propaganda or is it just not that deep? <laughs> All right. So this is this is this the fundamental tension. And I yep. think like the question of how kids know about shows that they have never consumed is one that is a mildly mind-boggling but also mm-hmm. not if you've ever observed kids playing the yeah. the way that they talk about shows. Mm-hmm. And then there's the secondary exposure element which is constant advertising on like youtube yeah the regular tv whatever Mm -hmm. so what do you think anything else i think that's it i mean i I mean it's a show that's very available to see it's a show that's very available to see on actual tv as well as on you know streaming and apps and things like that but to me my explanation would be that yeah it's just very there's a lot of paw patrol uh stuff out there. Yeah. If you walk around, you know, you do drop off or pick up at a at an elementary school or a kindergarten and you're just going to see a lot of backpacks and sweaters and and things like that with Paw Patrol stuff printed on it. There's a lot of like secondhand Paw Patrol inhalation going on <laughs> in America's schools whether or not, you know, the kids themselves are are really invested in it. Okay, then the second question is it propaganda <laughs> or is it not that deep? That's, that's a that's a real twofer question. <laughs> Yeah, how do you answer this one? I think before we did this recording, I read a lot of the sort of think pieces that were circulating during the pandemic and and during the civil rights marches about this show in particular, because I think it got a lot of, and I I can't really reconstruct the genealogy of how this happened necessarily specifically, but it it felt like Paw Patrol became a sort of marker of what propaganda looks like um, in popular media. Amanda Hess at the New York Times has a really good piece about it that I thought did a good job kind of summarizing the the controversy and 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 why Paw Patrol is at the center of it. Um, I think all shows, all world building, whether it's a, a kids show or whether it's Mad Men or whether it's you know a, um, you know the the MCU or something, are built around kind of fundamental assumptions about um, the world that they they live in, and they don't they don't have to um, focalize any particular thing if it's sort of part of the bedrock of what the story world is. I think right. Paw Patrol, I think a lot of shows assume that, you know, police officers are are always doing good and they're people who can help you if you need help. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it pops up, you know, more, I think, than you would imagine in, in a lot of different kids' shows. I think the fact that Paw Patrol puts it front and center is one of the reasons why it sort of stood out. I think in the sense of propaganda as it's talked about, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's propaganda. Yeah, you know? It is a show that's like <laughs> cops are good. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the main points of it. I mean, uh, to be fair, it's also about other emergency services, right? So it's about how firefighters are good too, right? Right. Um, so it, right. it's not, you know, it's not like a, the Paw Patrol is not as a whole a police force, right? It includes a police officer. Part of what it is doing is sort of flattening all of those emergency services, right? So, like, yeah, of course people who drive ambulances are good. Of course, you know, firefighters who put out the fire at your house are good, right? And and the police are, are folded into that, too. So I think that's part of why it, it sort of 
it becomes such a, a sort of flashpoint uh, and became such a flashpoint as we were sort of culturally sifting through um, mm-hmm. even the most seemingly innocuous media and asking, like, where does this narrative come from? How does this get rehashed and rehearsed and learned, ultimately? Right. I imagine if you were to, like, talk at length with the creators, mm-hmm. There would never be a point where the creators would be like, you know what? We love cops. Like, we wanted to make a show that just was like, cops are awesome. Right. And instead, it's more like, how do we make a morally legible show (laughs) that involves tropes that are already familiar to kids that we can build on? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and then also make them dogs (laughs) um, so that they're cuter. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and also the melodrama of it all, which in, in so much as we're talking about like a morally legible universe where there are like people are good, people are bad. Mm-hmm. How do you find those people in any scenario? Like it's just, just easy. Like it's if yeah. anything, it's a lazy mm-hmm. world building less more than like a pernicious one. But it can be also be pernicious if it's lazy. So well, yeah, part of the way this works is through the reproduction of uncritical assumptions about the way the world works on the part of of writers. And part of the reason you're getting all these questions about Paw Patrol is that it's not that parents are more exposed to Paw Patrol than other shows. It's that they dislike Paw Patrol more than they they dislike the other shows. (laughs) It's not a very good show. I mean, I I think that's, that's at the heart of it. And part of what you're saying is like laziness or, or, or clumsiness about, about the themes is, is a, is a part of that. It's invoking, stuff that people should be thinking about more critically than yeah. they are thinking about it and reproducing it relatively uncritically. And and I think that that's one of the 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 things that is that makes this not I mean it's 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 an example of propaganda for just the sort of textual reasons that it is, but it becomes egregious, it becomes a sort of flashpoint for it I think because it's just not really thinking about it that much, right? It's yeah. it's just doing it because this is what you do. Why wouldn't I do this, right? Um, right. So I agree with you. There isn't a lot of. I, I don't think there's there's like a blue lives matter impulse behind the the writing and creation of of Paw Patrol, but I think it's doing a lot of that work just on its own. Okay, our next two questions are similar, so we're going to play them back to back. This is from Olivia. How did Paw Patrol get such a hold on us? My parent friends say that it's unavoidable and they feel like so few people in their spheres see the problems with the show that upholds a police state. Is anyone studying the effect that Paw Patrol or other shows with the same worldview are having on our kids? And this is from Cece. Why is Paw Patrol so beloved by kids? What makes it addictive in a way that Bluey is not? As an adult, I hate watching Paw Patrol for its black and white morality, the bad guy is always bad and painted in a very negative light as an overweight, middle-aged man who is selfish and mean. And why can't people solve their own problems and always rely on Paw Patrol? Also, the clever merchandising, which my kids want, I think is an example of merchandising opportunity disguised as a show for kids and makes me disgusted. I get the sense that this is a show, like a lot of kids' shows, that was almost like reverse-engineered, right? Mm-hmm. They were like... What is something we can merchandise the shit out of Mm -hmm. and then we can like figure out a narrative secondarily? Yeah, I think that part of your argument that it doesn't feel pernicious is because the narrative of the show is just an existing narrative, cultural narrative, Mm. right? Yes. Which is if you need help, call the police. Right. Or if you need help, call 911. And 
it's not doing much more than reproducing that narrative and adding puppy characters to it. Um, So I think that there's a kind of ease to this show that is instantly understandable to people who just exist in the cultural atmosphere we exist in, right? There are things about the show that are controversial, right? But there's nothing controversial about saying that its narratives are sort of deeply embedded in the culture, right? They don't have to do a lot of world building because the world that this show exists in is basically the one we exist in. It's just dogs instead of, of people. Right. I would also say, and because we've had this experience now a couple of times this year. So, you know, if you, your kid goes to public school or, 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 or even if they don't, right. Very often one of the things that, that you get is like a visit from the fire truck, yeah. And kids love it. Kids love a fire truck and you get to climb on it and, you know, honk the horn or whatever. Um, and and it's kind of an interesting it, firefighters have this cool object that gets to sort of signify what they do and get, you know, yeah. get the neighborhood excited about it. Like cops don't have a cool object that isn't a gun to get kids excited about. But what yeah. cops do have is dogs. And my both uh, girls have had visits from like cops with dogs at their right, schools and they love right. it right because they got dogs right they got cool puppies yeah. that we get to hang out with i think paw patrol it's not only that it's just sort of reproducing this pre-existing cultural narrative it's also taking advantage of of like one of the biggest pr advantages cops have with kids is that they've yeah. got dogs right and yeah. kids love dogs like <laughs> right? what's wrong with dogs so what if there's a show and the cop is a dog, right? That's just it, it, better than you could imagine. And a puppy. And a puppy, Not yeah. just a dog. <laughs> yeah, it's not some old, old, stinky, you know, <laughs> German shepherd. <laughs> just going back to the question asker who asked, is it not that deep? It isn't that deep. Yeah. There's not a lot of complexity to this show, even in the way that there is for some of the other shows that are that are kind of part of its, if a part of its genre, like, I keep saying Doc McStuffins, but Doc McStuffins, right? There's a slightly more, slightly more complex sort of uh, representation of like care and helpfulness within the context of that show than there is with this. Because in Doc McStuffins, it's about asking people to help you and um, people feeling a responsibility to care for each other. Whereas Paw Patrol, this is their job, right? It's, yeah. You just like press the button. You know, right. and and the the appropriate dog comes out to help with the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that I think that you're right. There is a it's it's hard to talk about Paw Patrol to like lend nuance to Paw Patrol because it's just it's 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 the point of the show is that it is not nuanced, right? The point of yeah. the show is that it is clear as day. Everything about the show is super clear, and yeah, I think especially for having conversations about the relationship between community members and policing, especially, you know, non-white community members and, and policing, like the show just does not have a space to talk about that. Yeah. Right? The show, there, so yeah. so yeah, you yeah. either, <laughs> in, in this situation, I think that the, the, the idea is you counter-program Paw Patrol mm-hmm. <laughs> with better versions of it. Or you just try not to have your kid watch Paw Patrol. <laughs> right. You're like, cool bag. Also, let's watch this instead. Right. right? right exactly. I do love that the person points out that like, oh, why won't my kid get addicted to Bluey? Because I don't know. Oh, I'd like to meet this kid that is incapable of getting addicted to Bluey. Because I, I, 
That is not my experience. <laughs> I try again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the best advice, right? It's like if there's a show that like sucks, right? Either it sucks because it's annoying or sucks because it has this complete lack of nuance and also is like reproducing these ideologies that are like propaganda like this. Yeah, counter-program. You yeah, know? there's a lot of kids TV out there. A lot of it yeah. on, you know, a lot of it on paid apps and things like that, but a lot of it on regular television and also freebie, you know, apps. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different kids shows out there that are doing doing better work than, than Paw Patrol is doing. I'm sympathetic to the idea that it's hard to escape because I we didn't escape it. You know, it's it's everywhere. Yep. But, um, you know, there's other kids shows. Our next question is from Kristen. And I love it. Melody's going to read it for us. Who wrote the Paw Patrol theme song? It's so loud and aggressive compared to the other kids' theme songs. All right. So we're going to play a little bit of this song. Oh, no. All right. I'm going to press play. Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, we'll be there on the double. Whenever there's a problem, Round Adventure Bay, Ryder and his team of pups will come and save the day. Uh, uh, I like the line, no jobs too big, no pups too small. (laughs) This is great. Uh, So the question is, why is it so loud and aggressive compared to other kid theme songs? Honestly, that just seems like in line with a lot of other kids theme songs. I I don't know. What do you think? I think there's two main kinds of kids TV theme song. One is fast, explanatory, premise-based theme song which i think this this falls under the umbrella of all the way back to like ducktales you know yeah so what's the show right (laughs) it's like the (laughs) is what this theme song is an answer to and then you have the kind of like bouncy enigmatic iconic theme song that like the bluey theme song for instance yeah um where it's just a little earworm that you get stuck there's no lyrics there's no real need to explain what's going on um but this is this is like if you took a a pamphlet about regional community services and asked Blink-182 to to turn it into a song for, like, a rock opera. The best part is that Melody looked up who wrote the theme song, and it's co-written by, like, a bunch of Christian rock stars from, like, the early 2000s. Really? Was not like, Sandy Patty? Okay, so it's two... Composers, two songwriters from very different genres. There is the Christian guy, or at least he wrote songs for Christian musicians, Christian stars in the early 2000s, like Sandy Patty, FFH, Point of Grace, Jackie Velasquez, (laughs) like everybody I listened to in 2001. (laughs) Sandy Patty was like kind of kids' music, though, right? I don't know. I never got yeah. into her, but yeah, no, know, that was like yeah. that was yeah. But it's a mashup. Um, it's the Christian guy. Sorry, I'm gonna edit myself out of this. So maybe no, like, you're not. You're no, gonna be in it. You're gonna be in it. This is like conspiracy <laughs> corner. Uh, <laughs> the other songwriter has written songs for like Kesha, Coldplay, the Pussycat so, Dolls. So it's like really a mashup. I just, like, this song is so bad. Why does it need so many composers? But I think that you're right. That it's, so, it's like, it's so simple. It's just what they do. It's like how, you know, sometimes freelance writers, they just have to, like, do copy editing sometimes to, like, 
put together a feasible salary. I don't know. This is what Kesha's co-writer is doing. I'm looking now. I'm seeing this as being bankrolled by the Rand Corporation. Halliburton? Wow. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) That was my Michael Moore reading (laughs) reading of this. Phil. George H.W. Bush (laughs) co-wrote this song? (laughs) The police state. Who benefits (laughs) from the Paw Patrol Corp? Uh, Do you think that our parents, like, hated the DuckTales song or, like, the DuckTales, like, premise? Just, like, diving into money? I don't know. Probably. (laughs) My my parents did not. You know, co-watching is, like, the strategy now. And my parents never watched cartoons with me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to mount too big of a defense of DuckTales. But I feel like there's a... Yeah, the class politics of DuckTales might be interesting to dive to dive into. There is there is he is like Scrooge McDuck is kind of on the outs though. It's it's it isn't yeah. endearing to everyone that he has that much money. It's useful to Huey, Dewey, and Louie, but it's not necessarily <laughs> right. Like he's grouchy, and so you're supposed to learn that if you have too much money, you're right. grouchy. It's bad. It's bad to have that much money. <laughs> right. Next question. This is about kids TV more broadly. Yeah. And it's from Anya. Why is the trope of one girl character in a group of boys so persistent in kids TV? You see it on the Muppets. You see it on the Smurfs. You see it now in Paw Patrol. It's even in Stranger Things. How are we still doing this? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? So this show was made in, uh, was it 2013? Am I right about that? Wow. It's that old? Yeah. And a lot of other shows were around then that don't have this problem. So, like, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood is roughly that vintage. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's it got pretty good splits, you know, for representation. Yeah. It feels anachronistic for the show to be this bad at gender representation. Yeah. In other words. Um, given that I think a lot of its peers were released and came into the media sphere at a time when it would have seemed weird to have just the one girl, you know, yeah. dog on the on the show because it feels like, well, why would you make that mistake? I think it goes back to what we were talking about before. Like, this show never feels like it's doing something on purpose, in part mm-hmm. because a lot of the things that it, it does, it does kind of by accident. Or And I, I was reading about it, and they they tried to, after the first season, they added uh, they added Everest to, to try to sort oh, of right. address this problem. But, but like, at what point during the production process did somebody not bring that up, you know, that, <laughs> that it was going to be a thing? I mean, I think part of it is, you know, there is, and this is, this is part of why I think Paw Patrol in particular feels more forward with its uh, whatever politics it has is in part because it does very clearly feel like a show designed for little boys to watch. Yeah. Um, and and I think, you know, the same thing is true of Super Wings. The same thing is basically true of Octonauts. On the other side of the ledger, there are a lot of shows that are very focused, uh, shows in this like pre-K, you know, mm-hmm. CGI space um, that are really focused on little girls in particular or whose like point of view character is a little girl. So like Doc McStuffins or uh, Jesse and Nessie or The Rocketeer. Shimmer and Shine shows like that. I mean, I I watch Shimmer and Shine. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of problems with Shimmer and Shine. There is one boy character on Shimmer and Shine, and he is just a complete moron. And every every episode is basically structured around the idea that there's this like elaborate 
thing happening with these genies and he's just completely unaware of it. I'm not saying this is I'm not advocating for Shimmer and Shine. I think Shimmer and Shine is is as problematic as, as Paw Patrol in some ways. But I think that there's a there are shows that feel very catered towards particular audiences based on gender. And I think Paw Patrol in some ways is in that that mix, but also is kind of ham fisted in the mistakes yeah. it makes in that in that respect. You know, I I have noticed through osmosis that a lot of the shows on PBS Kids, mm-hmm. which all kind of blend together in my mind, like the the characters are actually almost always pretty racially diverse, uh-huh. and there's no one main character. Like it's often like a team sure. that's doing something. Like it's always outdoors somehow. Maybe <laughs> it's just like what the kids that I hang out with are watching. Like yeah. they're oftentimes exploring mountains or mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Like that to me seems like more of where if you're trying to be mindful about this stuff then you don't have a main character right mm-hmm. you have many main characters sure. who are all interesting and skilled in different ways mm-hmm. and that is kind of the lesson of the show is that we collaborate mm-hmm. to do things and like oftentimes they meet an expert who imparts knowledge but then also they rely on the knowledge and like curiosity and innovativeness of the the younger kids who make up this this larger mm-hmm. worldview I mean, in my experience, thinking about shows that have been produced during and have had sort of like some sort of cultural purchase during the eight years that I've been a parent, it feels like a convention at this point for shows to sort of uh, foreground some some aspect or multiple aspects of, of representational diversity on yeah. screen. Like, it doesn't feel weird to me when there's a show that has a cast of characters who represent a sort of broad swath of of different races and ethnicities and, and genders. And it's stranger to encounter a show that feels very boy-focused or feels very white, right, in right. a new show, right? I think this is a... That's in part because it's been such a huge problem in mm-hmm. in kids media and in media in general. But just watching what what we watch on TV, I think that for for kids shows, I mean, I think it it's very obviously been a point of emphasis in kids television production over at least the last several years. I keep thinking about like they didn't necessarily need to gender the dogs. Like, what if they just <laughs> like just gave them weird dogs names like Spot? And then they're just like, this is a dog. Like, to me, that would be interesting and cool. Like, to just think about, like, here are dogs that are doing work and we don't have to focus on, like, giving them pink hats or whatever. Um, (laughs) All right. So our last question is a great example of why I love culture study readers. It is from Mandy. Are the pups on call all the time? When do they get breaks? How do they not burn out? Is the show promoting underfunding of public services and reliance on privatization of complex work? as well as exploitation of nonprofit workers, in this case, dogs. I've thought about this too much. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? Well, yeah, you've thought about it too much, but everybody's (laughs) thought about it too much. That's the, it's the, the way of, of watching that we, I think sometimes occupy is that we overthink um, these things. And, Again, I think the reason why Paw Patrol becomes a target here, rightfully, is that when you start to overthink Paw Patrol, it immediately falls apart in a way that some of the other shows at least can like hold up to 
the sort of projections of of parents in the audience, right? There are inconsistencies in Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, but there, you get the sense that there's a real like world there. Whereas, uh-huh. whereas Paw Patrol is is like a you know is like two tonal shifts away from being a nightmare, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and so just I, like a dog factory where they're always <laughs> they're like, yeah. when's my collar going to ring? Like, oh, my gosh, I'm always on call. Like, just yeah. These dogs with like stress disorders. And, like, yeah, I'm just a human boy. And all of my friends are dog police officers and <laughs> everybody's always in trouble. And they're a couple of adults and they're malicious and, and fat and middle aged and, and bald. Yeah, exactly. There's just, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, do you think, um, is there a show, like as a means of wrapping us up, like Mm -hmm. is there a show that you have taken particular delight in watching and not because it's like a show that has jokes for adults too, because I think sometimes adults fall into that trap, like the show that you think is delightful on all levels Mm -hmm. and isn't, doesn't fall apart the way that Paw Patrol does. Yeah, so... So I think Bluey is the obvious example that that comes yeah. up, in part because that's a show that that is just about being in a family, and yeah. and what it's like to be in a family. Um, I think that in this particular like genre space, even the good shows are are a little bit trying. I think we talked about yeah. you were talking about your um, the kids you hang out with, who kind of grew out of this show, and I think this type of show. Right, whether it's Paw Patrol or Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood or Wish and Poof or you know the Rocketeer, this like this super formulaic uh, CGI pre-K show really is the kind of show that kids grow out of. I you know we yeah. don't we don't really watch many of these shows at all. Phoebe's four, you know she was watching them, you know maybe six months ago, and it's just not she's not into it anymore. And I yeah. think in some ways. You, the thing you then say about Paw Patrol is, well, they'll grow out of it, right? But yeah. the other thing to say about Paw Patrol, especially if what we're talking about are the sort of uncritical assumptions it makes about what what policing is and the role that it serves in society and what level of trust, um, you know, the, the imagined viewer of Paw Patrol is meant to put in the police is that, yeah, it's a show kids grow out of, but it's a show they encounter during a very formative period of their their yeah. development, right? And so I admit that it is silly that I I ask questions about um, <laughs> about whether you know Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is a constitutional monarchy or <laughs> uh, is the the king a, a figurehead? Um, how is Miss Elena the child of a, a puppet and a human man? Like how I the, I admit those questions are silly. Right. Yeah. But their questions, I think, the, <laughs> the questions that your your readers ask about Paw Patrol are are also silly, but they're also important because kids are going to answer them at a time when they're coming up with answers for a lot of the questions they have about the world. Right. And so yeah. Paw Patrol slots right in there as a, as a kind of public service announcement for the fire departments for sure, but also for the police. Right. And that's the kind of thing that they just sort of can take with them. At its heart, that show is just a show about 
helpfulness and being a part of a community. But I think there are there are other shows that are about that too. I think Wonder Pets is is a really good one. Um, you know, Daniel Tiger is is silly, but it's also a really good one in that that sense. There's a show that has been on and off of streaming platforms since it was created, but a show called Usme and Roy that was on Max. It was part of the development of the Sesame Street oh, brand into right. standalone shows. That show is really good if you can find it. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think that it's it's a genre that you just don't want to stick around too much in because yeah. none of it's great, you know. But the goal is to try to minimize the amount of learning that happens in that space that isn't just about this vague positivity towards being a helpful member of a community. I will say that Daniel Tiger is the only show that I have like a visceral reaction to when I see it. I'm like, are they trying to anesthetize me? Like, are they trying to make the caregiver fall asleep right now? Um, last question. Yeah. What was your favorite cartoon when you were a kid? My favorite cartoon when I was a kid? Um, I think probably uh, at a certain age, it was DuckTales. I really loved DuckTales. Um, I was also a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan. Same. Yeah. 100%. No girls, except for the female reporter oh, in yeah, a jumpsuit. April, yeah. Respectable. Um, I also loved X-Men. I thought X-Men mm-hmm. was like really cool and interesting. I was like, oh, well, the gifted kids get to go to a mansion. Cool. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> X- X-Men advancing the pernicious gifted and talented yes. propaganda. We yes. have a different episode on that. <laughs> no, How easy been... is it to access testing to become an X-Men? <laughs> How how many of those not kids equitable. how many of those kids' parents paid for uh expensive test prep tutors in advance of them getting into the the academy, you know? Some but not all. That would be my response. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it has been a true delight. We are gonna have you come back on, maybe not to talk about children's television, oh, but maybe do. some other aspect of television. My great dream is to become the David B. and Cooley of this podcast. <laughs> Just you come in at the end, like, uh, you know, how like Terry Gross at the end of Fresh Uh, Air, uh, like has like a a nine minute TV review. Yep. Yep. Love it. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to find more of you on the Internet? Um, So I uh, you can follow me at PJMACIAK on the various socials. And I write very regularly at the New Republic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Next up, we're going to do advice time. So normally, this is bonus content that is just for paid subscribers, but we are making the full version of today's episode available to everyone. Think of it as a holiday gift from me and Melody to you. And speaking of holiday gifts, today's question is about the extra mental load a lot of moms carry around this time of year. So stick around. Welcome back to the AAA segment, Ask Ann Anything. I have a special guest for this question. Michelle Cisa, hello. Hi, Ann. Michelle is joining me because we just finished recording an episode about the Mean Girls trailer that's coming out next month. You do not want to miss it, but our question today is still very much in keeping with this episode's theme of fraughtness, generally speaking, in parenting. It's from a listener who wants to remain anonymous, so Melody's going to read it for us. I'm curious about how it seems that parents, usually moms, have more mental load around school winter holiday events than I remember from growing up. My kids are in elementary school. 
For example, organizing teacher gifts, spirit weeks, sending things for class holiday parties, kids needing different outfits for holiday performances. Maybe it was the difference between where I grew up in a smaller town and where I live now outside a big city, but I don't remember my mom doing any of this. How did we get here? How do we stop and or keep this from creeping on until it takes over even more of our lives? Do some parents enjoy it? I have not met them. <laughs> I have also not met them for what it's worth. All right. So does this sound familiar to you, Michelle? It does. I mean, I have so many thoughts about this Same. as someone who has two children. And I, I have a theory about where some of this pressure comes from, which is the big thing that's changed between our generation as parents and, you know, our parents' generation. Mm. And that is social media, where, you know, you are seeing everybody engineering all of these holiday moments, all of these, you know, outfits, these activities. There's this kind of arms race for creating, like, family memories Mm -hmm. through this visual medium where you're making sure that you've, like, you know, set design your children's birthday parties that you've gone to the pumpkin patch in the fall. Yep. And and it I don't know that anybody enjoys it, but I think when we see other people doing it, we feel compelled to keep up. And right. I think that pressure happens at school too, where there's this this idea that like if there's a silly pajama day, you have to send your kids in silly pajamas. Mm-hmm. I don't know why schools are so interested in it because I feel like teachers have enough going on and they also shouldn't feel like they have to engineer this kind of constant holiday magic. I think there's an interesting intersection here with what you were saying about the rise of social media. The other thing that has happened since we were kids is an incredible decline in school funding and public support for schools just generally. And so what you have are schools, particularly public schools, that are under threat, that are under duress, that it has never been a more difficult time to be a a teacher right now. And so I think that builds this like overdetermined thing about what you get all of the teachers as gifts. I think I used to like color a a card. That was the extent of the present that I gave to a, a teacher. And that didn't, that wasn't because I didn't appreciate my teacher. I think that the way that... we showed that we appreciated our teachers was by paying taxes and paying them a living wage. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing about the school holiday stuff and the, the spirit weeks, I did a piece on this a while back and we'll put it in the show notes. But a lot of teachers told me that one of the reasons they resort to these spirit weeks is because their teachers are, or their students are so worn down from school, from like testing and like just really too much stuff going on that this is a way to like give students some joy in the school week, right? Like, and to distract and to like, just have something fun. And that to me is a symptom of a a larger malaise and not (sighs) connected, obviously, to like women bearing the responsibility for creating holiday magic. But like, it's just a big part of this bigger cluster that's really frustrating. It is. Yes. And I mean, one thing I would also gently add is whether, you know, you don't remember your mom doing this Mm -hmm. because a lot of what our moms did when we were children is invisible to us. Because I think this kind of labor has always fallen on moms. And and it's challenging now because I think there probably were more stay-at-home moms 30 years ago than there are now. And the idea that you could devote yourself to, you know, your child's classroom was 
Uh, even then, probably an unrealistic expectation for most. But but now, you know, people are trying to do this on top of full-time jobs, mm-hmm. uh, on top of other caregiving responsibilities. And it really does feel like this, this decline in supporting our social institutions like school has displaced a lot of labor, unpaid labor, onto other people. And some of that is falling on teachers who are doing more and more with less, and some of it is falling on parents. Um, and I don't know what my solution for that is besides, you know, vote for <laughs> better funding, fight for better funding for your public institutions. Um, but also I try and really encourage people to opt out of, yep. you know, these That's things. What I was just if, gonna say. You know, <laughs> you don't have to participate in the holiday arms race. Um, and I think it's worth, you know, sending an email to your kid's school and explaining why you can't, because I think probably teachers would would feel relief to see a parent saying, you know what, this is a little too much. I don't think we need to do all this. Like, I appreciate it, but I can't participate for these reasons. Like, yep. give that teacher permission to plan less next year as well. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that teachers also say that if they don't participate in this, then they'll have parents who write in and say like why aren't you doing this (laughs) so if you can you know whether it's part of a parent teacher association or just like having a couple other people who write in and say like i'm i'm trying to give you permission like i'm that yeah that you don't have to participate in this that's great the other thing i would say is like you do not need to get a teacher anything cute as a present give them money like give them a gift card give them a gift card to target give them a gift card to starbucks wherever that is how you say it and then also have your kid do something that is meaningful like and that is maybe harder than making or buying something cute but at the same time it's more meaningful and then I think your last point about opting out is so great because it's hard at first but I have watched a lot of moms be like you know what I there's so much stress in my life over the holiday card I'm just gonna stop just stop yeah and once you don't do it one year it gets so much easier and, you know, the truly radical suggestion, if you find that this is all falling on you as the mom in the <laughs> dynamic, perhaps it's time for your partner to write some holiday cards, you know, to to make sure that the, the funny pajamas are cleaned and packed for school. I mean, I see among my friends who are parents so much of this anxiety among women in, in heterosexual marriages <laughs> with children. And I don't know that like the men in those families are even often aware of these expectations. And nope. that is also something that hasn't changed over the generations. You know, my mom talks about how my dad was always listed as the first contact for schools to call if we were sick or something like that. And regardless, every time one of us threw up in the classroom, she got the call first. Oh my gosh. And, and that has to change too, you know, yeah. like make sure if there is a huge volume of domestic labor accumulating around the holidays that you're talking with your partner about either how to share it or just what you're doing. Like, let's make that work visible to everybody. I think that that last point is so important because sometimes I think a lot of us who feel like we're shouldering a lot of the mental load do so in silence. And then at some point it boils over and like you have a fight. Yeah. And so sometimes just talking about the things that you're doing can be really useful in making that mental load visible. Um, and, And hopefully if you have an empathetic partner, they will see a lot of what you're doing and be like, how can I, how can I share that load? How can we like do this together or figure out what, what as a family, not just you as a mom, but as a family, what do we want to prioritize? What is actually meaningful to us? What matters? I think that that's a great way of approaching it. 
make men do more holiday cards. (laughs) (laughs) There's our solution. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anne. Thank you so much for listening to the Culture Study Podcast. If you like today's advice time or just if you like this episode, you will love being a paid subscriber. Head to culturestudypod.substack.com to sign up, get all of the cool perks, and enjoy the heartwarming knowledge that you're helping us make the show that we want to make that is just as weird and interesting as you heard today. I'll also say that this is our primary economic model. If we don't have subscribers, we can't keep making the show. So if you want the show to continue, gotta subscribe. We have so many great episodes in the works, and I promise you don't want to miss any of them. Next week, Melanie says I have to say I'm taking the plunge. (laughs) Literally. We're going to be talking about cold plunging and the weird culture that's popped up around it. And the tentative plan is I have to go take a cold plunge. We'll see if this happens. The Culture Study Podcast is produced by me, Anne Helen Peterson, and Melody Rowell. Our music is by Poddington Bear. You can find me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson and the show at Culture Study Pod. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Bye.